It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Hello, listeners. I'm your host, Amara, and this is Black Girl Gone, a true crime podcast. On this episode of Black Girl Gone, we tell the story of the brutal murder of Yolanda Holmes, a 45-year-old woman from Chicago, Illinois. The night Yolanda was murdered, someone broke into her home and shot her while she slept. Everyone close to Yolanda said she had no enemies. So why would someone kill this mother and business owner? The killer was closer to Yolanda than anyone could imagine. This is Yolanda's story. The saying, the love of money is the root of all evil, for those who don't know, is actually not a saying. It's a Bible verse, and it comes from 1 Timothy. You often hear people say that money is the root of all evil, when it's not money in and of itself that is evil. It's the love of money, and then what we as human beings are willing to do to get and to keep that money. Most murders happen over love, or they happen over money. The things people are willing to do to each other over money is really shocking. It's hard to understand the lengths to which people will go just to have money. Most murders also happen at the hands of someone the victim knows too. As unsettling as that fact is, random murders happen, you know, people get killed during robberies gone wrong. Sometimes they are the victims of, you know, a stranger's blind rage, but 9 times out of 10 the victim and the murderer were connected somehow. The story about the murder of Yolanda Holmes is a story that involves both of the most common elements. Yolanda Holmes was originally from Chicago, and she was born there in February 1967. Yolanda had spent her whole life in Chicago and was a graduate of Crane High School, where she was a very popular cheerleader. Yolanda was a petite woman. She stood just five foot tall. And because of that, you know, people who were close to her affectionately called her shorty. The people that were closest to Yolanda said that she was a bundle of energy. She loved to laugh and to play spades. Now, I know y'all are going to judge me, but I do not know how to play spades. And nobody has ever had the patience to really actually teach me. And for those who don't know, playing spades um, or knowing how to play spades is a really big part of the Black culture, especially here where I'm from in Philadelphia. And people who play spades, like, they do not play about spades. But for those, you know, who knew Yolanda, she was, you know, a fun person. She loved to laugh and she loved to travel and she was just someone that everyone loved to be around. In December 1989, Yolanda gave birth to her only son, Kwame, who she just absolutely adored. Her whole life was about her son, and everything she did was so that she could create a better life for Kwame. 
Yolanda's passion outside of her son was hair. And so she ended up opening up a hair salon in Chicago that specialized in natural hair. And she called the salon Nappy Heads, and she spelled heads with a Z on the end. And Yolanda, she specialized in locks and twists and braids. And the salon quickly became really popular in Chicago. And Yolanda became a staple in her community. We all know that barbershops and hair salons can be gathering places in the Black community. And Nappy Heads was that kind of salon. People loved coming there not only to get their hair slayed, but they also liked to converse and engage with Yolanda. But even more than just good conversation, Yolanda was someone that people liked to confide in. She just had this way about her that brought comfort to people who sat in her chair. As Yolanda's business became more successful, she was really able to afford, you know, a better life for her and Kwame. She was able to send him to private school And she was really able to kind of, you know, give him a really comfortable life. But Yolanda also used her success to give back to her community, too. Every year, she would host a back-to-school events, and she would give out backpacks and school supplies to the kids in the neighborhood. Yolanda's sister, Yune, was also a frequent visitor of the salon, and Yolanda would do her hair every Sunday. As the years went on, the salon continued to do really well, and Yolanda was enjoying the fruits of her labor. Her son Kwame was still very much a part of her life, and even as he got older, they remained very close. Yolanda continued to support her son even after he graduated from high school. You know, she would give him money, she even bought him a brand new Camaro, and she helped him get a job. The love that the mother and son shared for each other was evident to everyone who knew them. Kwame even had his mother's name tattooed on his shoulder as a kind of tribute to her for all the things that she had done for him over the years. But Kwame wasn't the only one. Everyone loved Yolanda, which is why what happened to her made no sense. How could a woman who everyone loved and respected ended up murdered in her own home? By 2012, life for Yolanda was good. Nappy Heads had seen 15 successful years of business in Chicago, Yolanda's personal life was going pretty well, too. She even had a boyfriend at the time named Curtis. And Yolanda was living in a nice apartment over on the north side of Chicago. By this time, Kwame was 23 years old, and he had decided that he wanted to pursue a rap career. Now, Yolanda, being the mother that she was, you know, she helped her son and supported his, you know, new career and his new ventures. On September 1st, 2012, Yolanda and her boyfriend, Curtis, had spent the evening together. According to Curtis, the couple had gone out for drinks, and then they had come back to Yolanda's apartment and eventually fell asleep. Around 4.45 a.m. that morning, on September the 3rd, Curtis is awakened by the sound of a gunshot. And when he woke up, he finds an unknown intruder inside the apartment. Now, startled, Chris jumps out of the bed and he starts fighting with whoever this person was that had just broken into Yolanda's apartment. However, the gun wasn't the only weapon that this man had. He also had a knife. And while fighting with Curtis, he stabbed him multiple times. Now, Curtis, although badly injured, is able to fight off the attacker who eventually flees the apartment. Now, after the attacker left, Curtis calls 911 to report that someone has just broken into the apartment and attacked him and Yolanda. When the police arrive on the scene, there is blood everywhere. I mean, all over the walls, all over the floor. 
it's clear that there has been a real struggle inside of this apartment. Now, last year, Yolanda's story was featured on ID Channel's show Suspicious Minds. And in that episode, the detectives who arrived at the scene said that it looked like someone had literally fought for their life. Now, Curtis was rushed to the hospital. He had been stabbed in his head and his hands. And although the wounds were pretty bad, they were non-life-threatening and he was expected to survive. Now, police on the scene, they started searching the apartment. And when they enter the master bedroom, they find Yolanda dead. She was lying face up on the bed with her feet on the floor. She had been shot in the head and had had multiple stab wounds to her chest. Now, like the detectives on the show said, people are either shot or they're stabbed. But shot and stabbed? That's definitely overkill. So police begin processing the scene. They can't talk to Curtis yet because he's being treated at the hospital for his stab wounds. So they really just had to try to dissect what they see in front of them. But processing the scene was challenging for investigators because of the amount of blood that was all over the apartment. They are able to locate the gun that was left behind by the killer who dropped his weapon during the struggle with Curtis. The gun, however, was broken into pieces, which police figured had happened during the struggle. The gun that was used was a revolver, but the knife was a paring knife, which is not usually the kind of knife someone uses in a crime like this. I mean, it's a kitchen knife. So one of the detectives at the scene was able to match Yolanda's wounds to a paring knife. And it wouldn't take investigators long to figure out that the knife had came from Yolanda's kitchen. However, unlike the revolver, the knife was not in the house. But the fact that the killer used a weapon that he found in the house is very strange. I mean, if this was a robber, robbery, you know, robbers usually come to commit a crime with their own weapons. So why would this killer get a knife from the kitchen? Now, at some point while police were processing the scene and looking for any evidence that might tell them what happened, Kwame showed up at the apartment. Now, police asked him a few questions, but Kwame had no idea who or why, you know, someone would hurt his mother. Now, as news starts to spread that Yolanda has been killed, the people who knew her are shocked. No one could understand how someone could kill Yolanda. It just didn't make any sense to the people that were close to her. Police spent hours at Yolanda's apartment collecting evidence, and they were able to recover the gun, but weren't able to lift any fingerprints because the gun was covered in blood. They also recovered the broken earpiece from a pair of earbuds that still had the cord attached, and they took that in for DNA testing. Now, at first, investigators thought that this could have been a robbery gone wrong because in the hallway, there were wads of cash. But before police could move on to theories about what may have happened, they needed to find the other murder weapon. So in the early hours after the murder, police searched in and around the apartment building for the knife, but they never found the second murder weapon. Now, with only one murder weapon and very few clues about what happened, they knew that their surviving victim was going to be the key. So later on in the evening, on the evening of September 2nd, investigators returned to Yolanda's apartment, and that's where they meet Curtis for the first time. And Curtis tells police that, you know, 
about the evening that he spent with Yolanda in her apartment. And Curtis says that he was awakened by a gunshot and someone standing in the doorway of the room shooting. He tells them that he got out of bed and started to fight with the intruder, and that's when he was stabbed. The huge amount of blood that was in the hallway and the apartment belonged to Curtis. Curtis's story that someone had broken into the house did not initially make any sense to investigators. There were no signs of forced entry. And it's always strange to investigators when a crime like this involves two victims, but only one is killed. Investigators also know that intimate partners are typically the first suspects. Now, Curtis was injured, but could he have staged the attack so that he would look innocent? Well, police really didn't know at this time. But fortunately for them, the building that Yolanda lived in had cameras everywhere. And so they knew that if someone had come and gone from the building, that they would be able to see him or her on surveillance footage. Now, while police tried to get the footage, people in the community and people that knew Yolanda started to talk, and their suspicions about who had killed Yolanda were leaning towards Curtis. According to those close to Yolanda, she and Curtis's relationship was far from perfect. It had been, you know, on again, off again for years, and one of her friends even described the relationship as being volatile. But there isn't a lot of public information about Yolanda and Curtis' relationship other than that. Now, on the episode of Suspicious Minds, friends of Yolanda recalled an incident at a party where Yolanda and Curtis had gotten to a fight and the police were called and they had to escort Curtis from the party. Now, after that, Yolanda broke up with Curtis, but eventually the couple reconciled and they got back together. But for police, finding out you know, about this incident set up red flags. If there was a history of violence in the relationship, then perhaps Curtis is involved in what happened. But rumors and suspicions are just that, and facts are facts. Now, people had spoken to Yolanda's neighbors to see if anyone had seen or heard anything, but no one had. Now, you have to remember, this murder took place at 4.45 in the morning on the Sunday before Labor Day. So most people were probably asleep, and therefore they didn't see or hear anything that would help the police. And so at this point, police know that the only way they can get a lead is by finding something on those surveillance cameras. On Monday, September 3rd, police returned to the building to speak to the building super, who not only had access to the surveillance cameras, he also had access to all of the apartments in the building. Now, neighbors told police that the super, who they called Mr. Darrell, was always around watching everything that went on in the apartment building. But when police speak to Mr. Darrell, he tells police that he wasn't home the night that Yolanda was murdered. But he does let them look at the surveillance footage from the cameras. And luckily for police, because of the time of the morning that the murder took place, there wasn't a lot of people coming and going at this time. So it was, you know, way easier for them to pick out any potential suspects. And the camera did catch something that would add credibility to what Curtis had told them. There is very little activity on the footage in the hour before Curtis called 911. But at around 4.30 a.m., a man appears at the door of the building. Now, the man is wearing dark-colored clothing, including a hoodie that he has pulled over his head. 
and he was carrying what appeared to be some dry cleaning and a bottle of laundry detergent. Police also noticed that the man appears to be wearing multiple layers of clothing. Now, it's late summer, it's early September, so the amount of clothing that he was wearing was immediately suspicious to police. They immediately thought that the person on the camera was trying to hide his identity. Now, about five minutes after the man with the layers of clothing walks into the building, cameras capture what appears to be the same man leaving the building. And as the man is seen leaving, another man passes by him and enters the building. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So now the detectives have two potential suspects or witnesses that they have on camera. And they turn to Mr. Darrell for help and, you know, possibly identifying who these men were, you know, whether or not they lived in the building or whether or not he knew them to be visitors of the building. But Mr. Darrell, like a lot of Black people in Chicago, was reluctant to help the police. You know, the police in Chicago honestly have a terrible relationship with the community they serve. There's been a lot of corruption that has run rampant in the Chicago PD, and because of this, people do not trust the police even when they need them. Now, Mr. Darrell knew who the second man was. He lived in the building and coincidentally lived on the same floor as Yolanda. But for Mr. Darrell, as he described in Suspicious Minds, what bothered him most was the fact that they thought that he had something to do with Yolanda's death. His reluctance to cooperate came from the fact that they thought that he had something to do with this murder. And that's completely justified for a Black man in this situation. But for investigators, in their defense, they were looking at everybody. Everybody was a potential suspect because at that time, they had no suspects and no real leads. However, despite Mr. Darrell's fears of the police, he knew that ultimately the right thing to do was to help police figure out who had murdered Yolanda. So the second man that's seen on camera entering Yolanda's building that night was a young man who lived with his grandmother in the apartment building. And according to Mr. Darrell, he knew this young man and had actually been mentoring him about what he was going to do after he graduated from high school. Now, Mr. Darrell arranged for the young man to go down to the police station and speak to the investigators. Now, once they speak to this young man, the investigators are able to rule him out as a suspect. But they do ask him to help them in identifying the man that was seen leaving at the same time that he entered the building. But this young man was unable to give them a description or help them at all. I mean, think about it. Could you identify someone that you passed leaving a building at four something in the morning three days before? I mean, I don't really know if I could. I'm usually really busy trying not to make eye contact with people so they don't talk to me or question me or say something weird. So I'm like 95% sure that I would also be absolutely no help in that kind of situation. So with the young man, you know, eliminated as a suspect, police are really kind of back to square one. 
They do have the surveillance footage, but now they need to identify the other man that's seen in the surveillance footage. At this point, it doesn't seem like Curtis's story, you know, it does seem like Curtis's story is potentially checking out. I mean, there is footage of someone entering the building around the time the murder takes place, but that does not eliminate him completely as a suspect because he very well still could have been involved in the murder. It's not like police haven't seen this type of thing before. So investigators go back to the surveillance footage. And now that they know that the other man is not a suspect, they're able to focus in on the first man. And they're looking for any details that would point them to any connection to the murder. So after watching the footage a few times, the the detectives noticed that the first man who entered the building was wearing a pair of white earbuds. And when he leaves, you can see that one of the earbuds is missing. Now, remember I said that when police were processing the scene, they found a broken earbud with part of the cord still attached. And so police now know that the man that's in the surveillance footage is potentially their killer. But there was also more. Now, when the suspect enters the building, he's wearing an Adidas jacket with the stripes going down the sleeves. But when he leaves, he's not wearing the jacket, and it also appears that he's changed his shoes. They also noticed that when he walks up to the door of the building, he goes up to the intercom in order to gain access to the building. And so police, you know, they're starting to gain some traction in the case, but they still need to find out who this man is that they see in the surveillance footage. He would be, you know, their potential suspect, and he would also be the person that could potentially either connect Curtis to this murder or clear Curtis of this murder. Now, Yolanda's family and friends were convinced that someone in her inner circle was connected to her murder. Yolanda was a private person who was very leery of strangers. And so the idea that a random person would go to this extent to kill her didn't make any sense. It had to be someone that she knew. In the weeks after Yolanda's murder, investigators questioned everyone who knew Yolanda. They even showed people images from the surveillance camera in hopes that someone would be able to help them identify their suspect. But no one could identify who the man was. And after months of investigating, police still could not identify who the man in their surveillance footage was. And they weren't getting any other credible leads. Yolanda's brutal murder had rocked her community. The fact that someone had taken her life in this way haunted the people who knew her and loved her. Police continued to work the case, but as the one-year anniversary of Yolanda's murder approached, police were still looking for answers, and so were the people who loved Yolanda. Suspicion continued to linger over Curtis, who had not been named as a suspect, but had also not been cleared. There were people in Yolanda's life that still had suspicions that Curtis had something to do with Yolanda's murder. For investigators, one of the things that had never that they had never been able to confirm was who let the killer into the building. They had long suspected that it was Curtis, and that that's why they thought he was involved. But 
they had no evidence and they had no proof. Now, police had requested the cell phone records for both Yolanda and Curtis, but it would take months for them to receive them. Finally, in the fall of 2013, detectives got a copy of the cell phone records. And the records reveal that the night of the murder, there was no activity on Curtis's phone. Yolanda had both a cell phone and a landline, which she used primarily just to buzz people into her building. Now, as the investigators look through the records, they find that a call came into Yolanda's landline at 4.30 a.m., but it doesn't say whether or not the call was answered. But that time matches the exact time that the potential suspect is seen approaching Yolanda's building and buzzing the intercom. Now, under Yolanda's cell phone plan, she actually had two cell phones. And so detectives were able to see the activity from both lines. The second line that Yolanda had showed that there were multiple calls to an unknown number immediately before, during, and after the time of the murder. But then the number is never called again. So the police have the records and some of their questions are being answered about the timeline. But the one question it did not answer was who buzzed the killer in. Now, the investigators do know, however, that Curtis was not communicating with anyone in the hours before or after the murder, which indicates to them that he probably ultimately was not involved. I mean, the likelihood that Curtis would orchestrate this elaborate plot to murder his girlfriend and then have no activity on his cell phone around the time the crime took place was, you know, for police, seemed very slim. However, there were calls placed before, during, and after the murder, but they took place on the second line owned by Yolanda. Now, detectives know that they need to figure out who this number belongs to. They weren't sure if it had any connection to the murder, but the number of calls and the timing of the calls, you know, the timing that the calls took place, was very suspicious to police. So they ran the number, and they ran it through their database, and they got a hit. The number belonged to a man by the name of Eugene Spencer. Now, detectives looked up Eugene and find out that he had had a few priors, and so they know that they need to bring him in for questioning. A few months after police first got the cell phone records for Yolanda, they brought Eugene in for questioning in December 2013. Now, Eugene initially denies knowing Yolanda or being at her apartment, but when police press him, he changes his story. He eventually tells police that he went to Yolanda's apartment because he was involved in a robbery. He then tells police that he shot and killed Yolanda during the robbery. And after all this time, police could not believe that they finally had Yolanda's killer in front of them. Eugene Spencer not only fit the description of the suspect on the camera, but he had also confessed to killing Yolanda. But the police knew at the time that Eugene Spencer confessed that there was way more to the story. The second cell phone on Yolanda's plan was not used by Yolanda. It was used by her son, Kwame. Now, police knew that the calls placed that night were placed on the phone that Kwame used. But police needed Eugene Spencer to tell the truth in order to figure out exactly how or if Kwame was involved in what happened to his own mother. 
Now, after his confession about being, you know, in a robbery, the detectives continued to ask Eugene how he gained entry into the apartment, which was a part of the story that he could not initially explain. Now, finally, after a few hours, Eugene, you know, remembers that he actually has absolutely no reason to protect the person who was really responsible for this crime. And Eugene tells the police that the murder wasn't a robbery and it wasn't a robbery going wrong. It was a hit. And the hit was ordered by Yolanda's own son, Kwame. Eugene told the police that the revolver used to kill Yolanda was given to him by Kwame and that the clothes and the detergent that he was carrying were also given to him by Kwame. He told the detectives that Kwame told him to, you know, make it look like he, you know, just belonged in the building. Eugene said that he was on the phone with Kwame when he entered the building to kill his mother. He said that he was talking to Kwame the entire time the crime was taking place, and that's why he had the earbuds in his ear. As for how he got into Yolanda's apartment, well, he said that Kwame told him to call the intercom. And he told him that if he just, you know, coughed into the speaker when Yolanda answered, that she would think it was Kwame and would just buzz him in. And so that's what he did. He buzzed the intercom. And when Yolanda answered, Eugene coughed. And thinking it was her son, Yolanda got out of bed and unlocked the door and then went and got back in her bed. A few moments later, Eugene Spencer entered the apartment and murdered Yolanda as she laid in her bed. And Kwame, he was on the phone the whole time it happened. Eugene said that after he shot his mother, Kwame told Eugene to make sure that she was dead. And so Eugene said that he went to the kitchen and grabbed the paring knife so that he could stab Yolanda. But he said as he's going back into the room, that's when he's confronted by Curtis. And they ended up getting into the struggle. But Eugene got the better of Curtis, and he pistol-whipped Curtis, knocking him unconscious. Eugene then went back into the bedroom, where he stabbed Yolanda, who was already dead. Now, Kwame did not tell Eugene that Curtis would be there, and so he had no idea that there would be another person at the apartment. He had also promised to pay Eugene a few thousand dollars for the hit, but apparently had only given him $70 which is why Eugene decided that he was going to tell the police about Kwame's involvement. And so now the pieces of this mystery had finally come together. Detectives now knew who killed Yolanda. They know how that they got into her apartment. And they know that Curtis was not the person responsible. But the fact that Yolanda's own son was behind this brutal murder left the why hanging in the air. But once police started to look into Kwame a little deeper, the why actually became very obvious. It was pure greed. Detectives had learned that Kwame had recently lost his job and that Yolanda had gotten tired of financing his life and had basically kind of cut him off financially. Kwame, who was this aspiring rapper, had a need to create a persona But creating the persona of a wealthy, successful rapper when you're not, not, you're not only not a successful rapper, you're an unemployed mama's boy who has been spoiled your entire life. Now, police learned that Kwame 
was the beneficiary of Yolanda's life insurance. And as her only son, Kwame got everything, including the $90,000 that Yolanda had in her bank account. And so while police were looking for Yolanda's killer and her family and friends were, you know, left devastated by this tragedy, Kwame was in the streets living his best life. He used his mother's money to, you know, put upgrades on the Camaro that she bought him. You know, he was taking pictures with large stacks of money. I mean, he used his dead mother's money to try and elevate his status as a rapper. And what I'm trying to understand is, in what world was this man thinking that this was going to, you know, that he was going to get away with this? He wasn't even using the money to, you know, buy studio time or finance an album. Like, he was legit just throwing the money away. He posted a video of himself, you know, getting a large sum of money out of an ATM and then going to a local mall and just throwing the money at people that he said were his fans. But when asked about it, the people said they had no idea who Kwame was and that he just walked up to them and started throwing money at the mall. I mean, it's just extremely pathetic. With everything the police learned from Eugene Spencer, along with Kwame's behavior in the months following his mother's murder, detectives had enough evidence to arrest Kwame for the murder of his mother. Kwame tried to deny his involvement in his mother's murder, but the evidence told a different story. Kwame was ultimately charged with the first-degree murder of his mother, Yolanda. In 2019, seven years after Yolanda was murdered, her son went on trial, And although he maintained his innocence, a jury found him guilty, and he was sentenced to 99 years in prison. Eugene Spencer, the trigger man, was also convicted and was sentenced to 100 years in prison. When the judge handed down the sentence for Kwame, he said that, quote, whatever he wanted, his mother gave to him. A car, a job. One can say he was spoiled. She gave Kwame life. And it was his choice to take it away from her. There is no way to ever understand how a son could murder his mother, especially a son who had been given everything. There had been nothing in this world that Yolanda was not willing to do for her son. And he killed her for money. Money that he used to create a false image for a non-existent rap career. It is really one of the most pathetic things I've ever heard. Yolanda had done so many things right in her life. So for it to be stolen by the one person that she gave life to really is a devastating end to her story. A beautiful woman in the prime of her life. She had raised the only child she had. She owned a successful business. And she was a staple in her community. She deserved so much better. Kwame, with his mother's name tattooed on his shoulder, will now spend the rest of his life in prison over some money. I wonder if he thinks about how much he ruined for so little. Yolanda will always be remembered by the people who, you know, lives she touched. Nebby heads eventually closed, but Yolanda's legacy will always be a part of the community that surrounded it. May Yolanda Holmes rest in peace.
When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, a typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.